We are uh, today um, just four more weeks until we complete our series through the book of Acts, Turning the World Upside Down. Can you believe that? This is message number 68 in this series. And so when we're done, it's going to be 72. So um, pretty amazing. I think that's some kind of record at LifePoint. I don't think we've ever had a series that lasted this long. And uh, I hope that it's been uh, meaningful to you. Just also want to let you know what's coming Um, in the remainder of the summer. I'd like to do something that we have done a couple of times in the past, and that's uh, a Q and A series, meaning your questions and my uh, effort to bring you God's answer to that question. And so, if you have a question that you'd love to hear a sermon about, a topic, um, would you just put that on a card and drop it in the offering box? Uh, or you can email me um, here at the church and, and send it that way, or text me or say, hey, you, um, either way. So I uh, would love to hear what questions you might have. And uh, some uh, a woman shared with me after the first service uh, a topic that she uh, wants me to speak on, and <clears throat> it's really, really challenging, which I get excited about. So... Um, I hope that you'll do the same. And then uh, in the fall, um, we are going to engage that uh, little-known book called Revelation. And so we're going to start a series through the book of Revelation. Uh, I've never, uh, I've studied Revelation uh, many, many times. I've never taught it. And so I'm excited to uh, to do this. Well, we're returning this morning to Acts chapter 27. Uh, which Abiodun Feliki began for us. And by the way, I'm thankful to Abiodun and to Evan for uh, speaking these last two Sundays. I think they did a great job. And uh, it's it's great to have confidence when you're away that uh, that, that things are going well. Um, in Acts chapter 27, we learn about the difficult beginnings of Paul's journey by sea to Rome. And, and so my intent this morning is to uh, just do a review uh, for you to catch you up on what Abiodun shared last week from verses 1 to 26. And then uh, together we're going to directly engage verses 27 to 44. Before I do that, I I, I, uh, I wrote something special for you, just for you. And, and so uh, listen in. And when you get it, you you can hum along if you like, because I, I kind of plagiarized it. I think you'll recognize it. Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale. A tale of a fateful trip that started from a tropic port aboard a cargo ship. Aboard a cargo ship. The mates were mighty sailing men, the skipper brave and sure. 276 souls set sail that day for a three-hour tour. A three-hour tour. The weather started getting rough. The cargo ship was tossed. If not for the sovereign hand of God, their lives would all be lost. Their lives would all be lost. The ship was wrecked on the reef of this unidentified isle with Julius, his soldiers too, the prisoners and the crew, the apostle Paul, Aristarchus and Luke, his friends on an unknown isle. (laughs) I wrote that just for you. No charge. I'll be here all week. It just struck me one day. I thought, I wonder if I could do that. Abiodun said last week that he thought I'd probably provide you with a map this week, and and so I decided to oblige him because I found a very clear and helpful map. Uh, You'll recall that Paul had been held under house arrest uh, for over two years in the praetorium at Caesarea in Israel. Uh, And uh, so you see Caesarea bottom right there, just uh, north of Jerusalem, right on the right on the water, right on the Mediterranean Sea, Caesarea by the sea. And during those two years, it it would appear, uh, both Aristarchus, who was from Thessalonica, and Luke, uh, who was uh, his partner and in mission and uh, who is the narrator of this uh, book of Acts, have been there with him. Great models of, of faithfulness and friendship. Uh, and now he and a group of other prisoners are placed under the custody of a Roman centurion named Julius. And I find it surprising that Aristarchus and Luke, who were not prisoners, were allowed to come along. 
And they, they embark presumably from the harbor at Caesarea. Uh, they go northward up to first to Sidon. And um, they're on board a ship from Adramidium. And I, I thought, where in the world is Adramidium? Uh, if you look at the Asian, uh, the continent of Asia on the right near the top there, you see Asia. And you just go north and west, you see the the port of Adramidium. And apparently it was uh, a, a shipbuilding, uh, well-known shipbuilding um, community. Also completely surprising is that disembarking in Sidon, uh, Julius allowed Paul the prisoner to visit friends in that city and be cared for by them until the ship was ready to set sail again. It, it, it indicates, I think, I mean, it's rather astonishing, uh, but it indicates a deep level of respect on Julius' part uh, for Paul, uh, an implicit trust in his integrity as his prisoner to not attempt to escape, but to return at the designated time. And of course, Paul uh, was probably thrilled that he was on board a ship that was headed toward Rome. That's where he wanted to go, so he wasn't going to miss the boat. They sailed from Sidon to the northwest. You see, passing by uh, across the north of, of the island of Cyprus, and uh, and their next uh, stop is there in Myra, in Asia Minor. Um, and there they uh, find another ship from Alexandria, uh, which is an, another major uh, shipbuilding community in the north of Egypt, right there on the Mediterranean. Um, and that ship was loaded with grain, and it was headed for Italy. They, they boarded the ship, which uh, sailed slowly and with some difficulty, uh, Luke tells us, to the island of Crete, which is smack dab in the middle of the Mediterranean. You see it there. And they landed at a place called Fair Havens uh, on the island of Crete. Verse 9 says that much time had passed. In other words, it had been a long voyage. The voyage... Thus far, it had taken longer than anticipated. The prospect of making it uh, to Rome was now more dangerous uh, because, Luke says, uh, even the fast was already over. What does that mean? Well, the fast is a reference to Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement, uh, which tells us that this was either late September or early October. And it's my understanding that the Mediterranean can be a pretty choppy place at any time of year, but it tends to be the roughest in the fall and the winter due to winds and storms. In particular, the Mediterranean Sea experiences um, some tropical cyclones, which are known today, they call them medicanes or Mediterranean hurricanes. Um, and again, those are in the fall, the winter, beginning in September, and they bring Heavy winds and heavy rain. Well, Paul, apparently, drawing on his accumulated experience on the sea, warns the ship's captain and Julius the centurion that sailing at that time might very well result in injury, loss of life, loss of the ship, loss of the cargo. But Luke tells us that the centurion put more trust in the pilot or the captain, the skipper of the ship, and the ship's owner than in Paul. They didn't want to spend the winter in Fair Havens, which you see there on the the east side of or the southeast side of Crete. They wanted to go to Phoenix and winter there, 45 miles westward uh, on Crete. Better harbor, safer harbor. Uh, you know, and to be honest, I might have sided with the majority as well on that one. Uh, let's let's see if we can creep along the shoreline and and just and just harbor at Phoenix. Uh, and after all, it was just a matter of uh, a few hours, a three-hour tour, as it were. But have you ever noticed in the Bible that majority decisions uh, nearly always prove to be wrong? They always, nearly always prove to be bad decisions. So they weighed anchor, they set out along the coastline close to the shore, but then it says they got struck by a nor'easter that came down, he says, off of the land. So this is wind that's sweeping down off of the island, and it hits them, hits the ship. It doesn't say it blew the ship. He says it struck the ship. So it came with some force, and it pushed them westward out to sea. 
So they, they, they essentially were losing control of the ship. They were being driven along by the wind. It reminded me of a, a family vacation that we took when our kids were little up to Canada. And we were in the Gastown district of Vancouver, British Columbia. Any of you been there to Gastown? Um, and there were, we, we, we encountered two Scottish women who were on the sidewalk and they looked bewildered and they're looking at a map. And one of them turns to the other and she says, we're going the wrong way. <laughs> we're going the wrong way. And that, uh, that, that, that has been repeated many times over the years <laughs> in our family when we've taken a wrong turn or missed an exit or something like that. But now Paul's cargo ship is going the wrong way, aren't they? They're not going towards Phoenix. They're, they're going towards Crete or who knows where. Um, instead of cruising just a few hours to the northwest to the harbor at Phoenix, 45 miles away, they are being driven relentlessly to the southwest. And Luke, Luke uses the phrase violently storm-tossed and helpless before the winds. They're in great danger. So now they begin taking emergency measures. They secure the ship's boat, otherwise known as a lifeboat. They take steps to protect the hull from being breached on an unexpected rock or a sandbar. And in verse 17, Luke tells us that they were fearful they would run aground on the Sirtis. The Sirtis. Well, where's the Sirtis? If you If you look at the bottom of the map on the left, you see North Africa there, and then you see that that bay, that gulf, that's known as the Sirtis. The Sirtis, uh, well, first of all, (laughs) that they thought that they might be near the Sirtis at all means that they knew that they had drifted possibly 600 miles. That's a good long way. If the Sirtis is actually two gulfs side by side on the, the coast of northern Africa, that and those gulfs have since ancient times been just graveyards for countless ships uh, and their crews because of its shoals, its riptides, its cross currents. There are some large submerged rocks and reefs. There's long sandbars that extend clear out into the sea a long distance. And, and once a ship had the misfortune of being drawn into the Sirtis, it very rarely escaped. It was a place to avoid. Then on board the cargo ship, there's this desperate fear taking hold that that very thing could happen. So the captain and the crew did everything they knew to do, uh, in particular, lightening the ship by jettisoning, jes- I can't even say it, jettisoning the cargo along with any unnecessary equipment. So they threw tackle overboard. I'm not sure what that meant, but only tackle I know about is fishing tackle, and that would be a that would be a crime to throw fishing tackle overboard. Verse twenty then tells us that neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. Think about that. And as you think about it, realize that that's just a typical week here in Western Washington, right? But 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 in their case, on open sea in a fierce storm, it spelled, spelled potential disaster. Why? Without the ability to see the stars, they couldn't navigate. They, they, they had no way of discerning where they were. And then Luke adds those lonely words, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. But in verses 21 to 26, we come to the, the pivotal moment that really provides the vital link between the first and second halves of chapter 27. And in verse 21, he says, Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. This is that I told you so moment that, that Abiathan talked about last week. Uh, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. William Barclay, the Scottish theologian, commenting on verse 21, wrote that it's quite certain that Paul was the most experienced traveler aboard that ship. Then he continued, 
Paul continued, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Well, that's some good news, right? Some good news. You're not going to die, but you're going to lose the ship. Now, how could Paul make such a hopeful statement in the midst of the hopelessness of that moment? How could he know who would live and die? How could he predict what would happen to the ship? How could he deliver those words with, with such calm confidence and authority? And the answer is simple. He could do so because he had received a clear word from God. There are a lot of people that, 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 you know, utter prophecies these days. And they'll talk about prophetic dreams and they'll have these visions and, and you say, well, really, where'd that come from? Did any of that come true? Paul had heard from the Lord. Verse 23, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Will you notice with me how he identifies God? He is the God to whom I belong. He owns me. He is my Lord and my master. I am his servant. I am his slave. He's the God to whom I belong, and he is the God whom I worship. I worship him. To him alone will I bow down, and not to any other. How many of us ever identify God as the one who owns us? The God who owns us. The God who has the right to call the shots in our lives. The God who has the right to scrutinize the decisions we make. We may not be shy about saying he's the one whom we worship, but to hear anyone boldly and unashamedly call him the God to whom I belong, and then to live with that consciously in mind is rare indeed. And yet if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, you are not your own. You are redeemed, bought with a price. And and Paul says, because that's true, You are to glorify God in your body. You belong to him. You're bound in obedience to him. In verse 24, he goes on. He said, do not be afraid, Paul. This is the angel speaking, the angel of God. You must stand before Caesar. You're going to get to Rome, Paul. Nothing has changed. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Apparently he didn't know which island any more than the sailors did. Just some island. See, the words of the angel to Paul on this occasion echo what we read in chapter 23, verse 11. It's just kind of a sequel. It's just kind of a rehearsal of what had been said before following the riot in the temple courts when Paul's life was seriously threatened. you remember that? The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. There it is. Some things are going to happen in between, Paul, but you're going to make it to Rome. See, in the moments when Paul had ample reason to question whether God's revealed plan and purpose for him would in fact come to pass, God visited Paul with his presence and his peace. Same is true in our lives, in those times when, when we question whether God's will is being worked out or what God's will is. God visits us by his spirit through his word. And, and in those moments, we need to be rehearsing what we know from God's Word. I had a friend in college who wrote a, a really beautiful song, and the only part of it that I can remember was the refrain. And it just said, Never doubt in the darkness what God has shown you in the light. Never doubt in the darkness what God has shown you in the light. Don't miss the additional details that Paul was able to inform his shipmates of and the words of hope and faith with, with which he was able to encourage them. Take heart, take courage. There will be no loss of life among you. You're not going to die. Even though you think you're going to die, you're praying not to die. You're not going to die. The ship is going to be lost. We're going to run aground on an island. I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. So don't lose heart. Don't lose courage. 
don't give up hope. And that's just review. Today we pick up the narrative at verse 27. Would you stand with me and let's read it together. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. And so they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. When he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. (coughs) So they cast off the anchors and let them in the sea, and at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. With striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. This is God's word. You may be seated. In verses 27 to 32, we find Paul large and in charge. What do I mean by large and in charge? Simply this, that Paul emerges as the leader on the ship, eclipsing both Julius the centurion and the ship's pilot, while at the same time maintaining a respectful posture toward them. So notice what happens. It's the 14th night. Two weeks have gone by. The they're being driven across the Adriatic Sea. Uh, and here the, the, the ESV translators got it a little bit wrong. The Adriatic Sea is that large body of water to the north between Italy and Greece. Uh, the larger portion of the Mediterranean that lies to the south, which would be regarded as the kind of western central Mediterranean, in those days was, the no, was known as the Sea of Hadria, H-A-D-R-I-A. Uh, after, I think, Hadrian the emperor, Luke tells us that the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. How did they know that? He doesn't tell us. Perhaps they heard in the distance the roaring of the surf hitting the shore, and maybe they heard um, other sounds. They took a sounding and found 20 fathoms, or about 120 feet. A fathom is approximately six feet. And then, then having drifted a bit further, they, they took another sounding. This time they found 15 fathoms, or 90 feet. And at this point, they become fearful that they're going to founder on the rocks of whatever this island or this body of land is that they're approaching. So they do the sensible thing. They dropped anchors from the stern, and they prayed for morning and the light of day to come quickly. But then something, I think, even more alarming happened. The ship's crew... The guys who were sailing the ship, who, who knew how to navigate, attempted to escape from the ship on the lifeboat, pretending to lay out anchors from the bow, which would have been a really foolish move, and Paul knew it. 
To attempt to make it to shore in the morning without a full crew might have been disastrous. So he said to Julius and his men, unless these men stay in the ship, unless these men stay in the ship, they cannot be saved. So they took heed of what he said. They aborted the escape attempt by cutting the lines to the lifeboat and letting it drift away. Now think about this with me. In a scenario which which uh, might very well end in shipwreck, how much sense does it make to relinquish the lifeboat? None, humanly speaking, right? But Paul wasn't exactly speaking humanly, was he? Uh, he was speaking on the authority of the promise of God. God would deliver them. But make note of this, that God's deliverance will be done God's way. God's deliverance will be done God's way. And isn't this a vivid picture of sinful humanity attempting to secure our own salvation by our own means? Sailors had heard what Paul said, that none of them would perish, that God would deliver them, but they wouldn't receive it. They wouldn't act upon it. Instead, they selfishly and foolishly took matters into their own hands. Every man for himself, right? Now, Jesus once said to his friend Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not, what? Perish. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be what? Saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You don't miss the exclusivity of that statement. God wants us to understand that there's only one way that any of us are going to get off this planet alive. And that's through personal faith in Jesus Christ. He himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. To cut away the lifeboats was to relinquish control, to surrender themselves to God's plan for their deliverance from the sea. And in the same way, you and I have to cut loose of, of all of the things to which we cling so tightly in our lives and on which we may be naively depending for our eternal salvation and put our faith exclusively in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished at the cross for our deliverance from the power of sin and death. It can be scary, I know, to relinquish control of your life to someone else. But here's the reality. Jesus Christ is God's only provision for the predicament of our sin. There is no other way. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved with the name of Jesus. And when you transfer your trust to Jesus from all the other stuff, you're, you're a pretty good guy, you're a pretty good gal. When you transfer your trust from that nonsense to Jesus, you, your sins will be forgiven. You'll be reconciled to God. You'll receive a new nature, a new character, and a new hope of eternal life. Sometimes I think we ought, instead of saying hope, we ought to say confidence because when, a lot of times when we talk about hope, it's hope beyond hope, right? But, but the hope that we have in Christ is confidence. Confidence in His promise. In verses 33 to 38, we see Paul the pro-visionary. Paul the pro-visionary. Have you ever thought about the etymology, the composition of the word provision or provider? They both come from that Latin root pro, meaning forward. And, 
and video or video, which means to see. So, so to be a provisionary, to be a provider is to see forward. Paul here is a provisionary. He is a provider, one who, like an army scout, sees what lies ahead and and anticipates whatever may be needed. At verse thirty-three, Paul sees what lies just ahead: that that this is the island on which they will run aground; that the ship will be lost, but that not a hair would perish from the heads of anyone on the ship. They would all survive. But they hadn't eaten for weeks, and they were weak, and and many of them may have been severely seasick. They would need all of the physical strength they could muster to swim to shore. So he took bread, unashamedly gave thanks to God in the presence of all of them, and began to eat. And he encouraged everyone else to eat as well. The leader, the provisionary in every crisis situation is the one who is not anxious but who exudes confidence and imparts confidence to others. Paul's confidence was in the Lord. And so with his public prayer, he he expressed and then he imparted that confidence and that hope. It's amazing to me how many people who acknowledge no personal faith in God will be extremely thankful in a crisis for the prayers of those who know God personally. So public prayer in a restaurant, in a friend's home, in the athletic club, at school can serve as a a powerful testimony to others who have no hope that there is hope in God. Verse 37 is where we learn that there were 276 people on board. And in verse 38, Luke tells us that having eaten, they proceeded to lighten the ship even further by throwing the remainder of the cargo into the sea. Imagine that they lost all the cargo. How, how much was uh, that dollar amount? Huge. And then they're shipwrecked. They're just shipwrecked. When morning broke, the body of land that greeted their eyes was familiar to neither captain nor crew. There was a bay with a beach. The thought occurred to someone. They might be able to run the ship right up on that beach. Great idea, right? <laughs> Great idea. They made preparations. They hoisted the sail. They caught the wind. They made for the beach. They didn't get to the beach. They immediately struck a reef. And now the bow is stuck in the rocks and the pounding surf, boom, 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 just demolishing the back end, the stern of the ship. I was reminded as I read this of an experience my dad had in the South Pacific in World War II. Uh, He was a Navy pilot in those days and at the time was patrolling a chain of islands for Japanese subs in ships. Uh, his engine was failing, so he sent out a mayday call and began to look for a place to land. And he saw what appeared to him to be a white sand beach, uh, wide enough to land on. And he set a course for that beach as his engine finally died. And now he's gliding, and to his horror, realizing that what looked from the air like a white sand beach was in fact a forest of tall, bleached coral heads. He, he pointed the fuselage between these, these two pillars, two of, two of those coral heads, put the plane between them, and as he passed through, he tore off both of his wings. And both and he, and he and his co-pilot were severely injured. Um, my dad walked away. In verses 42 to 44, we read that God fulfilled his promise, and the soldiers, the crew, the prisoners, and the passengers were rescued, rescued. In verse 42, the the Roman soldiers intended to do what they were trained and obligated to do, to kill the prisoners before before allowing them to escape. Under Roman military law, if a prisoner escaped, the soldier or the soldiers that were assigned to, uh, to guard him or her would receive the penalty that the prisoner would have received uh, after trial, right up to the death penalty. And it was only Julius' regard for Paul that prevented the soldiers from doing what they knew they should do. He ordered everyone who could swim to jump overboard and make for the land. Uh, The rest of them were issued surfboards and, and hung ten down to the beach. I'd like us to spend 
a few minutes here at the close on on the subject of being agents of hope. You know, the easiest application of this message or this passage would be to simply say at this point that God is present with us in the midst of the storms of our lives. And, and that would be true. He is. He has promised us his, as his disciples that he will be present, present with us and in us, that he'll never leave us or forsake us. He is as present with us in the most stressful, anxiety-inducing circumstances of our lives as he is in times of relative comfort and peace. But I think there's a different, perhaps deeper message here that, than even that. I'd like you to think with me about this, that Paul functioned on board that storm-tossed cargo ship as a calm, non-anxious agent of hope among people who had abandoned all hope of rescue or survival. To be on board a ship in the midst of a cyclone, in the midst of a hurricane at sea, having lost all control, helpless before the wind and the waves, is without doubt one of the most terrifying situations a human being could face. For anyone to be anxious, to be unnerved in a circumstance like that is totally understandable. But it's only a Christian who can uniquely exude confidence and hope when everything around them is going sideways. I read a story from the life of John Wesley, the 18th century English missionary to America, who became the father of the Methodist movement. As he was on board the ship that would bring him to America, his his ship also encountered a terrible storm, so intense that they all feared for their lives. The English immigrants on the ship were shrieking with fear. Sissies, right? Wesley also found that he was intensely fearful, mortally afraid of dying. And on that same ship were a group of Moravian Christians from Germany. What were they doing? They were singing hymns of praise to God as the storm raged all around them. And when the storm had finally subsided, Wesley went to one of them and asked, Were you not afraid? The man replied, I thank God, no. But were not your women and children afraid? No, came the reply. Our women and children are not afraid to die. What kind of humans are able to sing and praise God when their lives are being threatened and when everyone around them is shrieking in fear? The kind who are in possession of the sure and certain hope of the resurrection from the dead, eternal life, and for that reason are no longer enslaved to the fear of death. Interestingly, uh, through that and through some other subsequent experiences, Wesley came to the realization that he himself did not possess that same hope and confidence. And even though he had come to be a missionary, it was only later that he was genuinely converted. Paul believed so steadfastly in the sovereignty of God that he could look beyond the seemingly hopeless circumstances and and really anticipate with confidence that, that God would be faithful to his promises. And then he was able to go to the people and deliver that message of faith and hope to them. Our natural tendency almost always is to panic in adverse situations and to give in to anxiety and fear. And if we're not in possession of that vision of the sovereign authority and power of God for our circumstances, then then what are we to do? In Psalm 73, the, the psalmist is pondering the mystery that God can permit the wicked to prosper while simultaneously allowing the righteous to suffer. So he engages in a sustained and itemized listing of his observations and doubts. And after reflecting on them, he says to God, If I had said I will speak thus, 
I would have betrayed the generation of your children. In other words, if I had verbalized these things, if I had said them out loud, these things that are bugging me, things that are bothering me, the things that are just frustrating the life out of me, I would have betrayed your people, God. I would have let them down. I would have become a, I would have become a source of discouragement to them. So instead of publicly airing his doubts, instead of complaining to everyone about what was bothering him, he went, he says, to the sanctuary and wrestled with God about his doubts and grievances. And having grappled with God, he receives a fresh perspective. He he receives a new vision of the sovereignty of God, the authority of God. Throughout the remainder of the psalm, he praises the Lord for his sovereign power and his control of every circumstance. When you and I come face to face with our doubts and fears, we, we need to do the same thing. Don't freak out, wrestle it out with God. Get face to face with him, engage with his word, the Bible, until we're enabled to see things from his perspective. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And only when we've done that can we operate, ever operate as agents of hope in an anxious world. Only when we've engaged with the word of God will we be able to speak the words of God into the lives of others. There was an occasion in the life of Jesus when he and his disciples got into a boat, set out on the Sea of Galilee, and, and a great storm arose there, so that the boat was being swamped, meaning that it was taking on water over the sides. And where's Jesus? He's in the stern, fast asleep on a cushion. <laughs> So they woke him up and said, don't you care that we're perishing? They were about to capsize and drown and die. And Jesus wakes up and answers them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And having delivered that challenge, he stood up and rebuked, it says, the winds and the sea, so that there was a great calm. How could Jesus have been sleeping in those circumstances in the first place? I imagine he was tired. But it was also because Jesus always rested in the sovereign power and authority of his heavenly Father. And that he himself possessed complete authority over the wind and the waves. The disciples interpreted his confidence as not caring about them. And a lot of us will say in in adverse circumstances, where's God? And the answer is, he's right there in your boat. He's right there with you. He's not ruffled over the things that ruffle you. He cares about them, but he's not ruffled by them. So the disciples feel abandoned, uncared for, until Jesus stood, spoke the command, and stopped the storm. Notice that even Jesus' confidence in the sovereign power and authority of God and and in his faithfulness to his promises was misinterpreted, misinterpreted in the moment as a naive failure to perceive the seriousness of the threat posed by the situation and even as a failure to care. How can you and I be agents of hope for others whether they are believers or not yet believers, or even refuse to ever consider becoming believers in the constantly changing circumstances of life. How can you and I be men and women who exude and and impart hope to those who, for example, fear for their lives during a pandemic? To those who uh, who have received a diagnosis of a life-threatening disease? To those who may experience physical or mental disability, to those who who suddenly and tragically lose loved ones to death, to those whose marriages are failing, to those who suffer financial calamity, to those who fear for their eternal souls. I could go on, couldn't I? There's a long list. Well, let me suggest five essential implications that I think emerge from this passage for those who wish to be agents of hope. First, 
You and I must possess a genuine personal hope in Jesus Christ ourselves. That our sins are forgiven, that we're reconciled with God, that we are born again and have received the gift of eternal life, that, that we're no longer enslaved to the fear of death. We have hope, we have confidence. We know that, that death is not the end. I find it really interesting, just that little story about John Wesley, that here he is, a missionary, crossing the Atlantic, who had the the passion to go from where he lived to another continent and a, a largely undeveloped place to preach the gospel, but he didn't himself understand it. He he himself had not submitted himself to the to to personal faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, in order to be agents of hope in this world, we need to learn to articulate the message of the gospel to those who have never heard and and then be bold in sharing it with others. One of the most powerful things that that you can do to be an agent of hope to others is, is to be able to tell the story of God's work in your life how he found you, and how you found him, and the change that's come about, your confidence in Jesus. And then third, I think you and I need to faithfully read, study, memorize, meditate on God's word, so that our minds are constantly being renewed, and we're gaining the wisdom of God, for every circumstance. There's no substitute for that. We'd like there to be, but there isn't. And honestly, I think one of the the, the great problems of the church today is that in a time when we have more access to God's word and more translations and more paraphrases, uh, print version, electronic version, just everywhere, the church is largely Ill, biblically illiterate. And if you're not growing in Christ, it may be because you don't know his word. You, you, you're not taking the time. You're not making the effort. You're not digging into the word of God. You're allowing it to be other people's thing. And you're tagging along. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. I heard uh, John Piper, the famous pastor from Minnesota, recently say, as he was talking about what's being preached from the pulpits across America and bemoaning the, the lack of biblical content in the preaching in America's pulpits, <clears throat> he said, yeah, I could, I could preach all that. But here's the reality. I have nothing to offer you but God's word. I have nothing to offer you but God's word. I can share my opinions and my philosophies and my ideas. I'm not going to change your life. It's only God's word that can transform and renew our minds by the spirit. Fourth, and by the way, My goal every Sunday is simply to bring God's word to you as clearly, as accurately as I know how to do. And, and so that's, that's what it's going to be about. As long as I'm your pastor, it's going to be the Bible. We're going to focus on the Bible, what the Bible says, not everybody else's opinion, not, not philosophies, you know, not politics, not this, not that. Just God's word. Fourth, we must cultivate you and I, an intimate relationship with God. Listening for the voice of the Spirit of God, prompting us to speak or to act, and then responding with love and with confidence and with courage to say or do exactly what he tells us. That's what Paul did. The only message he had was, hey, the angel of the Lord spoke to me and he says, you're going to make it to Rome and none of of you on the ship are going to die and... We're going to lose the ship. We're going to lose the cargo, but 
not a hair on your head will be damaged. That's good news. But he only knew that because the angel of the Lord appeared to him. He, he was listening for the word of God. He was listening for the voice of the Spirit. I had an experience about a year ago, and this doesn't happen to me very often. But um, I was I remember I was driving home on 101 from Tumwater. I got off at the, the 101 exit there. And there was just this voice in my head that says, go, go to Jim's house and tell him that he is dearly loved. <laughs> I thought, nope, I'm in a hurry. Go to Jim's house and tell him that he is dearly loved. Ah, oh, come on. We, we punch each other in the arm. We don't, we don't say those kinds of things to each other. Go to Jim's house and tell him that he is dearly loved. So I went, okay, I'll do it. So I got off the exit near his house, drove up to his home, knocked on the door. He came to the door and I said, I said, I feel a little silly right now, but, but the Spirit of God told me to come to your house and tell you that you are dearly loved. Oh, well, come on in. So we sat down and I said, got nothing else to say to you, Jim. I'm in a hurry. But God wants you to know that you're dearly loved. And, you know, he didn't break down and cry or do anything dramatic. He just said, thank you so much. And then I went on my way. And later he said, you know, he said, I just really needed that at that moment. So the Spirit of God will operate like that in our lives if we're listening and we're responding to what he tells us to say and do, as Paul did. Listen for the Spirit of God in your life. You only do that if you're, you're working at developing an intimate relationship with him. So you hear his voice, you recognize his voice. Finally, we, we, we need to ask God to fill our hearts with genuine love for the people around us. So many of whom live every day of their lives motivated by fear and confusion, ignorance, hopelessness. And then we need to ask God to to show us how to minister hope to them in the name of Jesus and then make ourselves available to the Spirit of God to be used by him in that way in their lives. We don't always know how. I don't always know how to minister to people and the needs that they bring. Uh, I just don't. But I count on the Spirit of God to be able to work even through my foolishness and my clumsiness and and just believe that he's going to work. He's going to use me if I allow him to do that And, and if I speak his words and not my own. Let's pray together. Lord, may we become agents of hope. Would you work that in us? Lord, you've, uh, you've put on our hearts some people that we're praying for that they would come to personal faith in Jesus Christ. And um, Lord, would you allow us in their lives, according to your way and your will, to be agents of hope to them, that we would speak the truth to them, we would not be um, obnoxious, we would not be rude, but we would speak the truth to them in love and and uh, pray that your Holy Spirit will accomplish his work in their lives. Thank you for your word today. May we take it to heart. May we truly become those agents of hope. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.